everyone, welcome to this episode of Milk Hammer. Milk Hammer is a fan edition of Warhammer 40,000. I'm Austin Forrest, and today I'm joined by Caleb Baker and Lethan Stewart. Hey. How you guys doing? Today we are going to be covering the topic of vehicles, and this is no light subject matter. Technically speaking, vehicles are a unit type, and as you recall, last episode was the unit type episode, but we cut it short of talking about vehicles very much intentionally, as there is probably as much content and as many pages covering the single unit type of vehicles as there are all other unit types combined. Also, for those familiar with Warhammer 40,000 other editions, vehicles are one aspect of the game that we have perhaps changed the most. That is to say that it is the least like the handling of how vehicles have been handled in any edition. In brief, if I were to compare it to any other edition, I would compare it to editions um, prior to 8th, and that vehicle facing does matter, but that is where the similar similarities end. So, vehicles, much like other units, share a stat line that, it, that has all of the same characteristics as other units, uh, with one major difference. The save characteristic, the SV, the final characteristic on the bunch, has three numbers instead of one, separated by slashes. Um, if you're, L, you know, kind of think of it as like X slash Y slash Z. These represent the different armor facings of the vehicle, X being the front, Y being the side, and Z being the rear. Typically, the front armor is going to be the strongest or the highest of these. So if your front armor is 10, then you'll often see the side armor drop a little bit in strength. So if the front armor was 10, typically you'll see the side armor be 9. And then the rear armor drops quite a bit from there, usually being 2 less than the side armor. Meaning if your front armor was 10 and your side was 9, the rear is often 7. So quite a bit different from... There's quite a bit of a difference between the front and the back. Often a, uh, a, a stretch of 3. So in some ways, placing your shot well, as in doing it from behind a vehicle, increases the AP of that shot, the armor penetration value, by 3. Because you are hitting it where the armor is weaker. There are different types of vehicles. Uh, chariots, flyer, hover, skimmer, open top, tank, transport, and walker, to name a few. It is possible for a vehicle to be uh, multiples of these types. And we're going to get into the specifics of how those behave differently once we've covered the basics of vehicles. Um, as Stewie talked about in the... Uh, shooting section all the way back in episode one uh, whenever you're measuring vehicles you measure and fire vehicles range and line of sight you measure it and look from the point of view of the weapons mounting and along its barrel as opposed to anywhere on the vehicle or from the vehicle's base uh, mostly because most vehicles don't have bases likewise you will whenever you're moving measuring for a vehicle's movement you'll measure from the hull Vehicle movement is, like every other unit, they have the movement characteristic. Um, but Caleb touched on this when he covered the movement phase back in episode one. 
which is vehicles have three different speeds. And Caleb, do you want to talk about those again, just to recap? Sure. Um, so in general, if you if you're moving your full movement, um, that's what's called cruising speed. So the vehicle's focused on moving rather than shooting. So you're firing with a negative two penalty to your ballistic skill when you shoot with it in that case. If you move under half of your listed movement speed, then you're moving at combat speed. So that allows you to fire a single weapon at full ballistic skill um, while the others still take the negative two penalty. And then you can also remain stationary in order to fire all of your weapons. And you can also, pit if you pivot less than 45 degrees on the spot without moving anywhere else, that doesn't count as moving. So you can kind of sort of angle your weapons a little bit, but not, you can't 180 and then shoot as though, as though you were stationary. Correct. And by the way, this is one area in which the value between a tank destroyer and a turreted tank can be seen and felt in the game. Because if there's a fast-moving enemy, like an Eldar Raider, that moves up uh, to the, like, let's say moves to the si along the side of an Imperial Guard tank destroyer, what, what are those called, like Thunderers? Or I think their name changes based on what gun they have, but an Imperial Guard tank destroyer. It will have to move, uh, even if it just pivots, if it's truly on the side of the vehicle, it will have to pivot further than 45 degrees in order to get its primary forward-facing fixed gun to be able to target this flanking vehicle. Because of that, it will have to shoot uh, as though it moved, which means it's operating at least at, the, at cruising speed and suffers any penalties that the weapon types may incur. Whereas a vehicle with a turret can, uh, whenever it goes to shoot, the, the turret doesn't actually move in the movement phase, so you don't move it. Rather, uh, in the shooting phase, you just elect, say, I want to target this guy, and then the turret turns and faces to fire them. Now, if there are multiple guns on a turret, uh, what's that Space Marine vehicle you have that has like a billion guns on the turret, Stewie? The uh, Repulsor Execution. Yeah, and because that has multiple guns on it, some of which are facing different directions, uh, though the turret can turn freely, it can only turn once freely in the shooting phase, technically during the declare target step. So you can't, if you have multiple guns, uh, like one facing out the back of the turret or some like side defense fragmentation launchers, those are probably not going to be able to target the same target as the primary weapon. Uh, but for the most part, vehicles have one or two weapons on the turret and not the several that the repulsor executioner has but it is something to keep in mind uh and then when vehicles are moving uh unlike other things they do have to move uh, forward in a straight line now they can stop and pivot as many times as they want but that does force them to move in like kind of a, a more choppy pattern which can have an impact on how you navigate around terrain features. Speaking of terrain, we talked about this in the terrain section, but vehicles um, 
when they move into contact or move within difficult terrain, they take an agility test like any other unit would. But while other units are then are forced to move like essentially at half speed, vehicles actually full on stop. So difficult terrain is even more slowing for vehicles. Now they have a lot of vehicles have tools to deal with this. Skimmers can simply hop over a lot of terrain features. A lot of tanks can take dozer blades, which increases their agility for dealing with these sorts of situations. Um, but there is a reason that infantry and other unit types do better within terrain than vehicles do. When vehicles fail a dangerous terrain test, they uh, they take damage to their if they're if they're moving into the terrain they take it on their front facing if they're already if they started the turn in the terrain they take it on their rear facing now let's move on to talking about how shooting with vehicles works and really it's kind of a this is the other side of the coin to the movement one everything Caleb talked about a stationary vehicle is going to be able to fire all of its weapons and a one that moved at combat speed, which is half or less of its movement, can fire using a single weapon at full ballistic skill, and all of its other weapons fire at minus two. And then finally, one that moves at cruising speed fires all weapons at a minus two. And again, I want to point out that this minus two for combat speed or cruising speed is on top of any penalties that a weapon type might incur. Now, if you think back to weapon types, heavy weapons incur a minus one for moving and shooting. However, all vehicles count as relentless, so they don't have to worry about that. But if you also go back to the weapon types, unwieldy and ordnance weapons suffer a minus one and a minus two respectively whenever you are moving and firing with a vehicle. And a lot of primary weapons on vehicles, tanks in particular, see their weapons being unwieldy or if they're even heavier an ordnance weapon so if you have a tank with an unwieldy weapon which i believe a uh, uh like a lehman rust battle cannon is you move and shoot with that at cruising speed so you've moved more than half the vehicle's movement uh or its full movement somewhere in between there not only does every weapon have to fire at a minus two which would include the primary but it's also going to suffer an additional minus one for having moved uh, and fired an unwieldy weapon. So those stack and create a minus three penalty. And of course, if the opponent's in terrain, that might be another minus one or two. So you can very quickly run into a situation where you have a lot of penalties uh, bringing your, your ballistic skill down to like one on, on low ballistic skill models. So moving and shooting can be problematic for vehicles. Vehicle's weapon in line of sight, as stated earlier, is traced from the weapon mounting along the barrel. Now, sometimes you're going to have a model where the gun is glued in place and it should be able to move. But in that case, players should assume that the guns on the vehicles are free to rotate or swivel on their mountings. In rare cases where it matters, assume that guns can swivel vertically up to 45 degrees, even if the barrel on the model itself can't physically do that. 
And assume all hall-mounted weapons can swivel horizontally 45 degrees. Even if the barrel itself couldn't, the vehicle could adjust its hall-mounted weapons elevation by doing some strange tricks with suspension or graph technology and the like. Turret-mounted weapons have a 360-degree view. However, there are certain game effects that can limit, limit how much it can turn each turn. And turret companion weapons, when they're listed as such, must be fired after the main turret weapon. Um, and the turret cannot be turned after it has already been positioned for firing the main turret weapon. Sponsons can fire either 180 or sometimes even a little more or at just a kind of a right angle, a 90 degree. This is going to depend on the model itself. Now this can get a little bit tricky when you talk about proxies because somebody could design a A Lehman Russ that, while I believe the official model sponsons are more limited, you could design one, 3D print it, kit bash it, buy it third party that has sponsons that are more free. How you handle that should be up to your gaming group. Our gaming group handles it that it should behave like the official Games Workshop model does. So even if the model can physically rotate apart more than it should, we ignore that and follow what Games Workshop should do. But it's your game, and you handle it how you'd like to. Um, Hall-mounted weapons, or even rear-mounted weapons, any sort of facing-mounted weapon, uh, forward, rear, all of those are hall-mounted weapons. They typically have... Um, A little bit of an angle that they can they can fire at if it's written out as fixed though a like a forward fixed weapon is stuck firing straight forward pendle mounted weapons can always fire 360 degrees now this is something that Stewie touched on and we talked about vehicles, but because of how line of sight is drawn from individual gun barrels, you can often have a vehicle where only certain guns can see certain units. So, Stewie, do you want to talk about how often a time sponsons can't see the same thing? Yeah. Um, I'll also touch on the uh, repulsor executioner, its uh, inefficiencies with its weapon loadouts. Um, but to the first point, you take a Lehman Russ, for example, just because I'm a guard player mainly. And its armaments are usually going to be turret on top with big gun, two side sponsons, one on each side, and a hull mounted weapon directly up front. It, the uh, hull mounted weapon has the capability of pivoting about a 45 degree arc in front. So uh, the example that we have in the core rule books here. 
has a actually has a predator, but similar loadout. So I'll just say Lehman Russ. It has a Lehman Russ facing a small group of orcs slightly to its right, and then a orc truck or buggy of some kind facing partially to the left. It has the auto cannon in the turret, which could target either one, whichever the uh, shooter would like. The hull-mounted weapon could probably angle to either one. But specifically in the picture, the heavy bolters in the sponsons. One heavy bolter is perfectly capable of shooting the majority of the orc boys to its right. The other heavy bolter is not at all an angle of those boys, which would be where you'd want to shoot it. So the... Uh, the person controlling the tank is going to have to decide do they still want front armor forward or do they want to pivot the hull of the tank according to what would maximize their weapons efficiency which would allow the truck to its right to have a really nice angle directly into the side of the tank which would not be advantageous for said player. Um, and that's kind of the gist of it. When you've got a vehicle just loaded up with weapons, if you don't have the uh, a fairly decent distance between you and the target, your angles on your mountings have a tendency to play a very key role in your decision-making. Um, so I'll go back to the Repulsor Executioner. I've had this happen multiple times because it's probably got a half dozen weapon systems specifically on the turret itself facing in various directions. It's got um, offensive and defensive grenade launchers. It's got the main armament. It's got a coaxial machine gun. And I've had multiple times where well, just about every time, actually, where you shoot at a vehicle because the main armament is very much an anti-vehicle weapon in my loadout. But I'm also sitting there shooting a uh, basically an assault cannon at that vehicle as well, which doesn't end up doing anything. So yeah. it's uh, it's yeah, it's borderline, some... borderline a waste. What is it, an assault onslaught Gatling cannon, and then, yeah, you're firing the heavy laser destroyer. <laughs> now, <clears throat> one area as a companion weapon, the, the heavy laser destroyer fires first. So theoretically, if it shoots and destroys a transport and models come out, it would have better targets then, but that's rather hard to do. Um... Then again, you have to declare... Uh, here, here, Austin. I, I left that pause in there on purpose. I don't believe that's legal. Yeah, I think you're right. I, you ha you ha okay, you have to declare all your targets before you start shooting at all. Yeah. Okay. Like we said, vehicles are one of the more complex parts of the game. Now, when you shoot at vehicles, things get interesting. 
When you shoot at a vehicle, you have to be able to see its hull or its turret. So, gun barrels, antennas, decorative banners, poles, those don't count. And you roll to hit per normal. But allocation works differently. So when you fire at a unit of infantry, the controlling player gets to select a model to apply to. And he has restrictions on how he allocates those, but he has some control. When a vehicle is hit, you then roll on what's called the module table. So the vehicle module table to see what you hit. Now, a lot of times that's going to be a D18. Uh, it can be a greater number or a lesser number value, depending on if the vehicle is really small or really big. But it's typically a D18. And uh, most of the time, 1 through 3 is going to be, the result is called the core. Which means, you know, if you think about it, 3 out of 18 is a 1 in 6 chance to hit what we call the core. The core, resolving damage against that is the simplest because that is the vehicle's written HP on its characteristic stat line. So if I hit you, you we roll a die and I get a 2, that hits the, that hit hits the core, and then we resolve it like we would resolve any other hit. You do an armor save, you fail, I do a strength versus toughness roll to wound. If I'm successful, you lose HP equal to my damage roll. But... There are other results on the table. So let's say you hit an Aleeming Rust and I roll uh, a 5. Well, that means I hit the tracks of the vehicle. And modules have several elements to them. And there's a whole chart for this for each vehicle on each data sheet. There are traits, damage effects, and destroyed effects. Traits can affect the toughness or save value and sometimes other things of that module. So tracks on a lot of things, for example, are soft. Soft modules consider the toughness when resolving the wound roll, should that not be saved, because you still get the save as per normal after the hit roll, as being one less than what's written on the characteristic stat line. So it is easier to wound the tracks of a tank than the core of a tank. If I wound, damage is resolved out differently. While the amount of damage still matters, what I'm looking for is, did I do three or less damage or four or more damage? If I did three or more damage, the module becomes battered. A battered module is one that suffers an effect written on the module chart. There are two levels of being battered. In the instance of the treads, if I battered it once, so if I did a hit, got a wound, and did, let's say, two damage, that's three or less, it would be battered once, and from that point forward in the game, the vehicle would only gain plus two to its agility for the purpose of the treaded vehicle special rule, which is on its data sheet, when taking difficult terrain tests. Let's say 
I got a second shot. I did three damage. That's still three or less. It would take another level of being battered, which would then cause it to only get plus one from the treaded vehicle ability. Now, the treaded vehicle ability normally gives it plus three agility for difficult terrain tests. So you can see here where, as I'm battering the tracks, the benefit the tracks provide the vehicle gets worse. Now, what happens if I do a third point of damage? And let's say I only get one damage this time. Well, that's still three or less damage. That would result in a third battered token. However, you can't batter something three times. The third time, it becomes a destroyed result. And if its treads are destroyed, the tracks are destroyed, then the vehicle gains no benefit from the treaded vehicle uh, ability. Um, you can do the same with Vox casters or engines. In fact, if you destroy someone's engine, that vehicle is dead in the water. It can no longer move. Now, this whole time I've given examples talking about what happens if I do three or less damage. So you say, Austin, what happens if I do four or more damage? That immediately results in a destroyed result on the module. So let's say the tracks are in perfect health. I haven't battered them at all. I hit them. I wound them. I roll my damage on a last cannon. And I roll a five. Well, that's four or more damage. Those tracks immediately suffered a, de a destroyed result. I don't need to batter them twice and then destroy them. They are destroyed. Or part of them is. So the vehicle module table is the crux of what makes vehicles different. It's very detailed. It involves all the weapons on a vehicle. And this is where Stewie with his repulsor executioner can run into trouble when he talks about the turret being blown off. Well, the turret's a module. It has all these gun modules on it, but you don't need to destroy the guns if you destroy the turret. If the turret blows off, now you have a big old box that has, like, what? A heavy stubber out the back? And some it's got a, uh, and transport twin, capacity? It, it's got a, yeah, it's got a transport capacity of five and some, uh, iron hail heavy stubbers out the back. Yeah. Still, it's a very expensive transport at that point. Now... Damage in excess of 9, so I've talked about what happens when 3 or less damage or what happens with 4 or more damage. Damage in excess of 9, so when you hit double digits, uh, that excess damage is applied to the core. However, you will not see that happen outside of an Apocalypse game. I think even the strongest normal non-Apocalypse guns in the game only do up to 9 damage. So... Like I think a heavy Tau Rail rifle or something has the potential, if you roll the best multiple things perfectly in a row, it can do 9 damage. Maybe it's not 9, maybe it's... It's up there, but the point is it's not 10. But there's some Titanic weapons that can do a lot of damage. Now, shots are resolved against the facing of the vehicle that the shot comes from. So, to figure out what facing you're in, you kind of draw imaginary lines through the corners of, of, of vehicles. So, like, the front left to the back right, the front right to the back left. And those two lines create an X, where the X is the center of the vehicle. And if you think about those extending out away from the vehicle, 
the X continues and divides into four triangular shapes. The front, the side, the back. Well, both sides. Now, vehicles have different footprints. So the longer a vehicle is, the smaller its front and back areas are going to be. So like Dark Eldar Raiders are very narrow. So they have very small front sections. If a... Uh, a vehicle or its base, in the case of a walker, is even partially under a template. The hit is on the facing that the fire is standing in. So it doesn't matter what facing it looks like the template is over. The exception to that is, and that's true of blast weapons as well. The exception is a blast barrage weapon. Barrage weapons are always resolved the hit on the facing that the center of the template is located in. Because that's being fired up. And then potentially exploding behind the tank or hitting the rear of the tank or vehicle. Vehicles can be in a haul down position if they have a turret. If only the turret is visible from the point of view of the firing model, the target model is considered to be in a haul down position. When it's in this position, um, if it's hit, and the hit's assigned to a module that is not a turret module. The controlling player of the hit vehicle can elect to reassign that hit to a random turret module. If the random turret module is already destroyed, the hit is conducted against the core of the vehicle as per the standard order of operations, because that's something else we haven't talked about. Any future hits against an already destroyed module are applied against the core. So as you lose modules, the core becomes easier to hit, and therefore the destruction of uh, the outer destruction of the vehicle becomes more likely. So when you're in a hull down position, though, you can use that to make sure only the turret is hit, which uh, could be beneficial depending on what the vehicle is and what you're trying to do with it. Like I said earlier, modules can have traits. Turret is one of them. Um, X-Fold is probably another one that's important. X-Fold, the X stands in for a number, so it can be two-fold, three-fold, etc. And uh, while it only takes up a single slot on the module table, you kind of have to count that as two modules. The most common example of that is going to be sponsons on vehicles. Spons a lot of times you'll see sponsons as a module, and then it will say two-fold, or, or X-Fold rather. And you have to track, am I damaging the right sponson or the left sponson? So it's kind of a two-in-one module. And they each can be damaged or battered and destroyed on their own. Hard increases the toughness by the value of X. Soft X decreases the toughness by value of X. Vulnerable is whenever it's targeted by a dual strike or a sniper shot. Its toughness is reduced by the value of X. So that one's interesting because it's kind of like you have to specifically aim. So you can. this is where like a sniper can target the weak spot on an engine block. Open top modules. Uh, they take damage from any weapon that deals more than one point of damage. An additional point of HP lost is applied against the core. So going to pick on Dark Elder again. Their raiders are open-topped. So regardless of which module I hit, even if it's, say, the Aether Sail, 
If I do three damage to the Aether Sail, not only does it batter the Aether Sail, but because that's more than one point of damage, I do do a single point of damage to the core. So open top vehicles go down faster than closed ones. Um, light is a module, the light module is one that so long as the damage from the weapon exceeds X, so light X, the model is immediately destroyed. So you could have a module that is light one, which means, well, it typically takes four or more damage to outright destroy a module. A light one module would be destroyed with any amount of damage. Now, if the core hits zero HP, that's a wrecked vehicle, and um, it's, it's destroyed. They're left there on the table and become a piece of terrain unless it explodes. Whenever a vehicle is destroyed, you will roll a die and on a, you roll a d6 and on a 1 the vehicle explodes. When it explodes, not only can it damage nearby people and passengers inside it, it also pins people that were hit by it. And finally, instead of leaving a wrecked vehicle, you put a crater in its place. So when a vehicle hits zero, five out of six times it stays there as terrain. The uh, other one in six times it will leave a crater. Uh... Caleb, you want to talk? You want to talk about obscuration and vehicles, how they handle cover. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Sorry, I forgot I was on push to talk. No, you're good. Okay, so vehicles don't function the same way that infantry do or non-vehicle models in general do in regards to terrain, which I think we brought up during the terrain section itself. Um, a vehicle needs to have at least 25% of the facing that's being shot at hidden by intervening terrain or models from the fire point of view of the firing models. So again, true line of sight. So you're getting down, you're looking from the firing models to the vehicle. If at least 25% of that facing that they are shooting at is covered, then they become obscured, which means they get, they impose a minus one penalty to the ballistic skill of the model that's shooting at them. Um, as we mentioned again in terrain, vehicles can't make use of area terrain in this way unless the area terrain includes something physical that's actually still obscuring them, like a uh, like the trees in a forest or something like that. The yeah, so vehicles are more about obs general obscuring from the line of sight of the firer. Vehicles, when they're assaulted, and vice versa, 
Vehicles by default cannot charge. Uh, however, walkers and chariots do have exceptions to this rule, and we'll cover that when we talk about them later. When you assault a vehicle, you can... Well, a couple things happen. A unit can charge a vehicle in their charge phase. The charge move is conducted the same as charging any other enemy unit. And vehicles fire overwatch per normal. So if they've been set to it, they do it. If they have a template weapon, they fire it. When you fight the assault, though, if the vehicle is a stationary vehicle, um, then the weapon skill of those attacking it are improved by one. So vehicles that like to sit still to shoot are more vulnerable to melee. Hit allocation... This can be a little interesting. So regardless of where the model is in relation to the vehicle, so let's say it's towards the front of it, close combat attacks are, are resolved against the relevant facing. However, a model may elect to hit the top of a vehicle rather than the side it's on by taking and passing an agility test to climb up on the vehicle. And if it does so, it's going to hit, it uses the save value of the, of the um rear because the top of the vehicle uses the same save as the rear so again vehicles can be easier to hit and then also it's easier for the hit to get through the armor save if somebody climbs on top of it so stationary vehicles in particular can be beat up in melee if they can get there now while vehicles can be assaulted they don't pile in when it's their turn to fight and when vehicles disengage, instead of taking an agility test, they can take a toughness test. It's their option. So find out if it's more tough or more agile. Typically it will be more tough. And you'll calculate the assault results as normal, counting each, damage, well, each battered module as a single lost hit point and each destroyed module as two lost hit points. And of course, whichever side has lost the most hit points in a combat the other side will have to take that you'll have to take a morale test at later on in the morale phase now if a vehicle's been exalted and survived and doesn't move in its successes movement phase enemy models will still be in base contact with it during the shooting and assault phase <clears throat> if the vehicle pivots on the spot to shoot its attacks for example um, you move those models out of the way as you set the vehicle, and then you place them back into base contact with the vehicle as close as possible to their, or as close as possible if there's not room to put them where they should be. Now, while enemy models are in base contact with the vehicle, they can't fire their turret or hull-mounted guns as they're too busy trying to cast off assaulters, but they can still fire pentel-mounted weapons and sponsoned weapons. Uh, but even then, sponsons do so with a minus one penalty. So vehicles do not want to stay in melee. Now, as vehicles are valuable assets, they can be repaired. And at the start of a unit's movement phase, a unit may opt to attempt repairs for a module on its vehicle. So vehicles can attempt to repair itself. If they do so, they can't take any other action this turn. So this is similar to how characters can be given aid by their squad. 
To attempt repairs, the unit makes a repair test, which is an expertise test that utilizes the expertise of the vehicle. Um, or the expertise of the passengers, if the vehicle's transport has an embarked model with a better expertise. And if the test has failed, nothing has happened, but if the test is passed, the module can remove, uh, you can remove one uh, battered token from the module. This, of course, is what's done in place of anything else. Transport. So that's vehicles as a whole. That's baseline vehicles in a nutshell. Now we're going to get into some subtypes, but... Uh, before we do that, does anyone have any observations on vehicles as a whole? No, I think that covers it. Yeah. So I know there's a lot there, but in rears, vehicles um, have a simpler cover mechanic. You just need to be 25% obscured. When a vehicle is destroyed, it may be left as a wrecked piece of terrain or explode and result as a result in a crater. You have the module table to concern yourself with, which means you can hit different parts of a vehicle. And you have facings on a vehicle, which mean you can uh, affect how strong or weak the armor of the vehicle is, depending on what direction you target it from. And also, you measure and trace line of sight from the hull or from the mounting of the gun along the barrel, which means not every gun is going to be able to fire at the same target. And when you move, you have to, talk, to consider, will I remain stationary, which is not moving at all, and or pivoting up to 45 degrees? Do I move at combat speed, which is my movement, half my movement or less, or do I move at cruising speed, which is greater than half the movement? And, and that's kind of baseline vehicle rules in a nutshell. And we will move on in the next section to talk about the different subtypes. So now we're starting to talk about vehicle subtypes, and one thing that vehicles are used for in almost every army is transports. Um, sometimes you need to get your infantry from point A to point B without getting them shot up, and sometimes the best way to do that is to stick them in a big metal box so the metal box can get shot up instead of you. So whenever a vehicle's a transport, they always have a maximum passenger capacity listed as their transport capacity on their data sheet. Um, this indicates how many models that they can normally carry. Um, models with the bulky special rule will have a number after their bulky rule that tells you how many models they count as. So um, trying to carry... Uh, say dark eldar grotesques are bulky three i want to say so they would each count as three models for uh 
in when they're in a transport. Um, additionally, um, transports also usually have supplies in them, so you, they can be used to clear low supply tokens for non-vehicle units that um, that end their movement within two inches of a transport's access point, which I guess we haven't got to that yet. So, in addition to um, in addition to actually carrying the models, uh, the transport capacity will usually indicate where the access points are for the transport. So that means that some models are going to have like an access point on the rear, in which case you're embarking and disembarking from the rear of the vehicle. Others can have it other places or even multiple access points. Um, in addition to access points, there are also fire points, which can allow models that are being transported to use a shooting weapon in order to shoot out. Um, and, unless and, other... and one thing to note about disembarking is sometimes you're, you can be emergency disembarking. Um, and when that happens, you can disembark from areas other than the access points. This represents using like emergency hatches, windows, or other things like that. Uh, but if you if a unit has to emergency disembark, they can't perform any voluntary actions for the rest of that turn. Um, and when you disembark, you suffer a minus two penalty to initiative. So if you disembark and charge, uh, unless I think open top is an exception to that. Is that? That sounds right. Yes. Yeah, I think that's covered under open topped. Sorry, um, I interrupted your train of thought there. Um, yeah. So firing points allow models that are inside to fire their weapons. Um, if they're firing out of a vehicle that's moved at combat speed, they count as having moved. So that can affect them if they're firing like a heavy or a salvo weapon or something. If they're firing at cruising speed, they not only count as having moved, but they're suffering a negative one penalty to their ballistic skill. And that's in addition to the other effects. So if they're, if they're still firing a heavy weapon, they're stacking penalties, so to speak. Yeah. They also can't fire if the vehicle goes flat out or advances or uses smoke launchers. Um, as we mentioned with buildings, access points have a entrance size. So sometimes, even though you might have the ability to fit a model, uh, or sometimes even though you might have the space that you would be capable of carrying this many models that are so bulky, um, you might only have a door that allows a bulky two model to enter. Right. Like your example with the grotesques, I do believe they are bulky three. Um, let's say for some, you know what, they're a bad example because pretty much every Dark Eldar vehicle is open-topped and therefore just open and anything can fit. Uh, probably a better example, um, Rough Riders, no, uh, 
Imperial Guard Dragoons, their bikes are bulky three. Therefore, if you had three of them, that would only be equal to a transport capacity of nine. Which means they could technically fit inside of a Chimera, which I believe can hold 12 or 13 models worth of guys. But, as it requires a double door or larger to fit a bike through, to fit something bulky three through, even though the bikes could fit inside the Chimera, you could fit three bikes inside a Chimera, you can't get three bikes inside of a Chimera. It'd be really weird it would, to do that anyway. Defeats the purpose of the bike's mobility, but, um, you know, technically a limitation. <clears throat> but to that end, if there was a big flyer with, like, a gate on it or double doors, you could fit, you could potentially fit, by, like, a Thunderhawk has a gate, uh, on, on the, um, on it. So you could fit Space Marine bikes inside of a Thunderhawk, right? But that's an apocalypse game and kind of being played at an entirely different scale. But yes, that right. is a great point. Right. Um, so when embarking and disembarking, uh, first of all, a unit can only embark or disembark once per turn voluntarily. It can be forced to disembark if the vehicle is destroyed or some other effect makes it disembark. Um, but in that case, it isn't doing it voluntarily. Um, you embark by moving your unit. So each model is within two inches of an access point in the movement phase. Um, you still have to take your dangerous and difficult terrain test because running through a minefield in order to hop into a vehicle is still running through a minefield. <laughs> Um, once you're embarked, you normally can't interact with the battlefield unless, as we mentioned before, if a, if a vehicle has fire points, you can still shoot out from it. Um, if the vehicle has moved before the passengers embarked, it can't move any further on that turn, including, uh, attempting to pivot on the spot or advance. If it didn't move, it can move as normal though. But it can't um, use a tank shock or a ram in that in that turn. Mm -hmm. So interestingly enough, in this edition of the game, you can either move a vehicle and then disembark models, or you can disembark models and then move the vehicle. Some editions have limited uh, you to one order of operations or the other. This one you can do either, but like Caleb pointed out, you have certain limitations. If you move the vehicle and then disembark, that's it. The vehicle's done moving. Um, and uh, if you get the guys out before moving, then the vehicle can move freely and kind of do its own thing. And when you disembark, uh, you do that by simply putting your model within base contact of a vehicle's access point and then moving it and then proceeding to do that for every model in the unit. It moves its it moves its full movement. And it obeys a lot of the same rules for moving. So like you can't move within an inch of an enemy unit. Uh, and you have to end within you know, you want to end within coherency of your unit. Now there are some 
Uh, like I said earlier, when you disembark, if you charge that same turn, you do it with a minus two penalty. Emergency disembarking is disembarking outside of emergency hatches. Uh, independent characters, when they're in a transport, they are uh, they automatically join one of the units in the transport with them. So it's they're assumed to be in coherency and therefore joined to the unit. They can separate it, though, by disembarking separately or moving away after disembarking. If a vehicle is assaulted and it has firing points, um, the unit inside can overwatch if they were set to overwatch. If a transport is wrecked or explode, any hits caused to its passengers don't count towards the combat resolution in an assault later on. Meaning, if you lost three guys to an explosion and then fought a close combat with someone, the three lost in the explosion does not count towards losing guys in that combat, which would count towards a morale, uh, taking a you know taking a, a leadership check for morale purposes. Sometimes the passengers will show up, or not sometimes, I think every transport has the passengers as one of the modules. So when we talk about those modules earlier on. So it is sometimes possible to hit the vehicle in such a way that you're actually killing passengers inside of it. It's of course much easier to do this on open top vehicles because there's nothing between the passenger and the bullet. Now, if a uh, unit is in a vehicle when it's destroyed, after they disembark from it, that unit is pinned because they were inside of a vehicle that was destroyed. Transports are one of the most valuable parts of vehicles. They protect your infantry. I think that in a game where infantry win you the game, but vehicles are the most survivable thing, transports are kind of the unsung heroes of the vehicle world because even though they're often the most plain they give you that perfect balance of they're carrying something that can do the objective but they can also survive long enough to get to it so having transports in a well i feel like you will always have transports in a well-balanced list that's not to say you can't build a list without them like a Maybe a bike and deep strike heavy list could, could exist, but I think the typical list is going to include transports. Yeah, most of the um, most of the lists that we've regarded as, hey, that's a pretty well-rounded list, has, has at least three, I want to say. Yeah, I'd say that's a fair number. Well, yeah, I think three is a good... I... Maybe not at least three. Let's say an average of three. Because, I mean, there are some Dark Eldar lists where they have a lot of raiders. Like up, you know, six or seven. Yeah. But I only have two in my Space Marine list. I have two Impulsors. Um, but you all, but you also have the Storm Raven. I also have the Storm the Raven. Pods, which are carrying things. The drop pods, though, don't act like a transport in the sense that they protect anyone. 
They're just a more accurate deep strike. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, they are transport. You're not wrong. They follow the rules for transports, and they're literally in the transport slot on the Force Org sheet. But there's never an instance where you're shooting at the... The second they show up, the guys disembark, you know? But you are right. I do have the Storm Raven that is a transport, so I do have three. I have three in the guard list I'm building. So I guess I like to build lists with three, right, on the money. But those are also Imperial lists with more expensive but more durable transports. You get into Dark Aldar territory where things are weaker but cheaper, you're probably going to have six, you know? And, and to be honest, there are some lists, though, too, like my Necron one, where... I guess I kind of have three there. I have two ghost arcs and then a single monolith. But I also have several units in that list that are just hordes. So there are going to be some horde armies out there where you're just like, I'm throwing a lot of guys on the table. Yeah. Anyway, now let's talk about another unit type, another vehicle type, aircraft. And oh boy, aircraft are as different from other vehicles as vehicles are from other unit types. So buckle up. Flyers, with the exception of hovering gunships, do not stay on the board and move like normal units. Rather, you call them in for air support on a turn-by-turn -turn basis. The way requesting air support works is, during each player's command phase, if you have an aircraft, you nominate a character in your army to request air support. You do this by rolling a d12 for each aircraft, and you want a 6 down. So... That means by default, there is only a 6 out of 12, so 50-50 chance of getting your aircraft in. Now, this can be modified by all manner of radios, vox casters, and like equipment, but those things are few and far between. I've rarely seen anything buffed more than, like, I've never seen something buffed more than twice, and it's very hard to buff something twice. So, you're at best doing an 8 down. And that's a snowball's chance in hell that you're doing an 8 down. If you really try hard, you can do a 7 down. But most of the time, it's a 6 down. Truly a 50-50. If the request for air support succeeds, you bring in the aircraft onto the board at the start of your, players, at the start of your, your movement phase. Unless you decide to atmospheric bomb with it, which we'll talk on that in a bit. To do this, you place the aircraft... Anywhere you want on the board, and I mean anywhere, these things have infinite movement. They literally have the infinity symbol under their movement characteristic. Because when you talk about the scale of the size of a Warhammer 40,000 map in, in the 28mm scale, and the speed at which even modern jet fighters move, let alone super science fiction ones in the universe that is Warhammer 40,000, where everything is bigger, better, and more gothic-y, um... They can go anywhere they want on the board, facing any direction. And you can even place them on enemy units, because their base is not really there. It is just something to hold them up. Now, there's an exception to this whenever a gunship enters hover mode. And I'll talk on that in a section, second when I talk about aircraft types. Now, when you place an aircraft, you do have to keep in mind weapon facings. Just like any other vehicle... They fire from the mounting of the gun along the barrel. So you do have to worry about arcs of fire, even if you don't have to worry about movement. 
So whenever aircraft go to shoot, they do not follow the normal rules for moving at uh, cruising speed. Because they're moving infinity. So there's no half of infinity. Half of infinity is infinity. And there's no stationary. Rather, <coughs> excuse me, they always fire with a minus one plistic skill penalty. Fighters, though, and we'll talk about specific aircraft types in a second, don't suffer that minus one when they shoot at other aircraft. <coughs> now, aircraft ignore walls for the purposes of determining uh, if they're targeting the target of a flying aircraft that gains the benefit of cover. Ba basically, long story short, I won't get into all the details, but aircraft don't get cover because they are... <clears throat> and they uh, they could be attacking a target, and, and the inverse is true. So if you're behind a wall, you don't get cover from an aircraft because it could be much higher than it looks positioned on its flight stand. It could be even attacking you from like a straight down position. There's a whole other third dimension that could be happening. So you have to sometimes think of the location of the flyer as an approximation of its presence on the battlefield. That said, aircraft don't ignore ceilings, overpasses, or area terrain for the purposes of cover. Because if you're in a bunch of trees, that's area terrain. You could be hiding under a log. Overpasses, things like that, obviously, are going to provide protection from above. Now... During the morale phase, so at the very end of your turn, you remove each aircraft and return it to combat airspace. That means you're taking it off the board. If, when you're doing this, the aircraft destires, instead of returning to combat airspace, you can return, return to a nearby airfield for what is known as refuel and resupply. When an aircraft in an airfield, uh, during its next command phase, it can choose to either repre replenish limited use ammo. So, for example, if it started the game with four missiles and it fired all four, it can gain those missiles back. It can remove a low supply token if it's suffering from one, or it can attempt to repair a battered module. So, there are a lot of benefits to being refueling and resupplying in an airfield. However, when you do that, on the following turn, when you try to come in in a request from air support roll, you suffer a minus two on that requesting air support roll. So instead of needing the six down by default, you need a four down. So the odds of coming in are less if you are in an airfield. Now, whenever you're shooting at an aircraft, you can't shoot in an aircraft unless you're using a weapon that has the AA special rule. And even then, you suffer a minus one ballistic skill whenever you shoot at an aircraft. Now, as aircraft arrive and leave on their own turns, the most common way to fire at aircraft is with overwatch. So not only do you have to have AA, and when you have AA, you suffer a minus one ballistic skill, but you need to have thought ahead and placed a unit on overwatch. However, uh, and since overwatch attacks are done at a minus one ballistic skill, most attacks against aircraft are done at a minus two ballistic skill. 
Lore-wise, this is to represent just how fast, far up, and high, and far away they are. That it's just hard to hit them, frankly. Now, uh, AA weapons, and this is something that is part of AA, not really part of aircraft, but I do want to touch on it here. All have an opportunity to, if you pass an expertise checks, fire an improvised overwatch attack, even if the unit they are a part of was not set to overwatch. So, in a sense, nothing can shoot at aircraft except for AA weapons. They're probably doing it on an improvised overwatch, and they're probably doing it with a minus two ballistic skill, but at least they can shoot an aircraft. You say, Austin, that makes aircraft seem pretty powerful. They can move infinitely, and they are pretty hard to shoot at. And I'm like, yes, but try only getting them half of the time, and not always when you want them. And they're vehicles, so they're not always cheap. By default, blast and tiplate weapons can't hit flying aircraft. But there are a few abilities that may allow that to happen. No units may declare a charge against aircraft as they are substantially further away uh, from them than they look. You can't run up into the sky and, and hit something with a chainsword. Though if you recall the section on flying monstrous creatures, they do have a way to do it. Now, aside from AA, what is your other way to defend against aircraft? Other aircraft. Intercepting. After an enemy player places an aircraft on the board, you, if you have any other aircraft of your own, can make an immediate interception roll, which is done the same way as requesting air support for each aircraft that you want to do that with. And if you're successful, you place the intercepting aircraft on the table facing head-on with the attacking aircraft 12 inches away. Once you do this, a dogfight takes place. Any aircraft that succeed in an interception roll, uh, by the way, can't request be requested for air support on the player's following turn. And after you attempt an interception roll against one flyer, you can't attempt an interception roll against another flyer of your opponents with that same one that already attempted one. How do you do a dogfight? Well, when dogfighting, both players will end up firing their AA weapons at each other simultaneously, but first they have to determine their aircraft's final position. To do this, they each roll a d12 and add either their agility or their initiative. Um, if they're the non-intercepting aircraft, so the one that came on to attack, they use their agility. And if they're the intercepting aircraft, they use their initiative. If the player's end results, the D12 plus these characteristics, are within two of each other, they stay 12 inches apart facing head-on. If they... If one player wins by three or greater, they place that aircraft on the side of the other aircraft, so it's coming at it side-facing. And if one player wins by six or more, you place the winning aircraft at the rear of the other aircraft 12 inches away. And then they each shoot. Now, as a reminder, all aircraft grant their non-unwieldy and non-ordnance weapons AA. And if they already have AA, they gain plus one ballistic scale against flyers. So a LAS cannon on the ground does not have AA, but a LAS cannon on a flyer does have AA.
Uh, aircraft do not utilize network command. If we go all the way back to the network command that we talked about in the first episode. As they are often so far high up and doing their own thing. So that's aircraft in a nutshell. That's how they come on the table. That's how you shoot at them with AA. That's how they're intercepted by other aircraft. Now I want to talk about the three types of aircraft. There are fighters, bombers, and gunships. Fighters are agile, and they're perfect at combating enemy aircraft. Uh, fighters do not suffer the minus one ballistic skill for shooting at other aircraft. Bombers, and that's all fighters do uniquely. They're very straightforward. Bombers have the ability that when they come in from as air support, they can choose to come in as normal and fire with all their weapons or bomb from high altitude. When they bomb from high altitude, they are pretty much untouchable. Uh, but they can only drop their, they can only use weapons with the bomb subtype. And when they do that, it scatters an additional D12. So it's less accurate, it's limited to what it can fire, but it's safer for the bomber. They can't even be intercepted at high altitude. Finally, you have gunships. Gunships are interesting because when they come in, you can choose to hover with that gunship. A hovering gunship stops acting like an aircraft and starts acting like a skimmer. There are certain downsides to that. You no longer get the automatic minus one to hit them. Also, they can be charged and everything. They, they function like a skimmer at that point. The upside is they don't go away anymore. So aircraft, you know, every more alphas, you pull them off the table. So that means you can bring a gunship in and then switch them to a hover. They behave like a skimmer and then they don't leave the table for the rest of the game. And you can also always choose to have them leave the table in a future turn and become an aircraft again. While they're skimming, their move characteristic changes from infinity to 20. 20 is still a lot, but it's not infinity. Aircraft are um, pretty powerful. I have uh, two in my Space Marine list. I have none in my Guard list. Um, I have none in my Necron list. Do you have Do you have one in your Eldar list, Caleb, or do you just have some of those skimmers that can like kind of blur the line between skimmer and aircraft with their special rules? I've got a Nightwing interceptor in my Craft World detachment. Um, currently, I don't have any planned for my Corsairs, but they don't have an option for any. So. And Stewie, you take um, you've taken a Valkyrie on occasion, haven't you? I take a uh, variant of the Valkyrie. Yes. Okay. So yeah, they're a bit different. Our Dark Eldar players each use flyers. In general, when you're building the list, you don't have to bring a flyer or an aircraft, but you do need to have a plan for dealing with them. So either have AA weapons, a flying monstrous creature. Or a fighter, or well, an aircraft of your own, and if it's the, you know, and if it's gonna do dedicated anti-air roll, preferably a fighter. But gunships can do it, and bombers can do it in a pinch. Now another vehicle type are chariots. Chariots uh, move like normal vehicles, and if the chariot is also a skimmer, the rider can make what are known as sweep attacks. And without getting into the details, a sweep attack is essentially a way for when a chariot moves over at a unit in the movement phase, they can, like, 
attack units on the move so they can sweep their weapon down and attack them. Uh, it's done with a penalty to their weapon skill, but it's, uh, it's a way to, to, to kind of fly overhead and hit and run people very quickly. When you shoot from a chariot, uh, so long as the chariots, uh, their chariots are, you know, open-topped. When you shoot at chariots, you do it the exact same way as other vehicles. The rider can't be targeted separately from the chariot, but he is going to show up on the, on the, uh, module chart. The rider is one of the modules, so he can be hit. And to that end, you could snipe at him because you can choose what module to hit when you snipe. Now, unlike other vehicles, chariots are allowed to declare charges in the assault phase, provided they didn't advance in the preceding shooting phase. Uh, and as long as they meet other, all the other criteria for charging is normal. When you fight from a chariot, the rider of the chariot is treated as being in base contact with all enemy models that are themselves in contact with the chariot for the purposes of the rider attacking and all models attacking a chariot in close combat may, after rolling to see which module they hit, they can add two to the result. And the rider is usually the highest number result on the module table. So the adding the two to their result increases the likelihood of them being able to hit the, uh, the rider. Uh, sometimes riders have abilities that they can confer to nearby units that they could normally only apply to the unit if they were in bedded in the unit. Sometimes chariots have like a command aura where they can provide that to someone nearby. And sometimes there's additional crew on the chariot that can make attacks of their own. Open top vehicles, new type of vehicle we're talking about. Open top vehicles don't have an access point. Instead, the vehicle is considered, the entire thing is considered to be an access point. Um, when passengers shoot from open top vehicles, they don't have a specific fire point. Instead, they can fire and measure range and line of sight from any point on the vehicle's hull. And whenever passengers charge from an open top vehicle, uh, they don't suffer the minus two penalty to their initiative for charging the same turn that they disembarked. And finally, open-top skimmers, uh, when you disembark or embark from an open-top skimmer, so long as the skimmer's base is within half an inch or uh, horizontally and vertically within six inches of a flat level above them, you can take an agility test, and if you pass, you can disembark onto that level above it. If you fail, though, you do have to fall and take an <gasps> impact test. Um, Caleb, you want to touch on skimmers? Sure. So skimmers kind of function to vehicles the way jet units uh, function to infantry. They're able to go over um, obstacles in their way that are less than 15 inches. I. That sounds right to me. Yeah, yeah, I was just double checking. That sounds right. Um, they also can ignore difficult or dangerous terrain if they're passing over it, but if they start or end their move in it, they have to take a dangerous terrain test. Um, they can move on top of impassable terrain if it's possible to fit the model there. 
if they're somehow forced to end their move over friendly or enemy models, they have to be moved so that no one's left underneath. Um, if they have, if they are immobilized somehow, uh, such as by the vehicle allocation table, and they've moved flat out, they suffer a hit. They suffer a number of hits to their front facing to represent, uh, you know, stopping can be difficult even for even for a hovering vehicle like that. Um, if they are immobilized or wrecked, uh, you can attempt to remove their base if it's possible, since they're normally on some kind of a hovering base. Um, sometimes they might have their bases glued or drilled, though. Uh, in which case, it's just left there as normal. Um, other than that, they'd function like a normal vehicle. They have jink, so as long as you keep them moving, there's a ballistic skill penalty to attempt for anyone attempting to shoot at them. They also have pop-up, which lets you um, treat them as though they're, they're higher than they currently are. Um, does pop-up give AA normally, or is that only on Ravagers? That's only on Ravagers. So whenever you pop up, um, there some things have a specific ability that they gain. But yeah, the AA is... Ravagers, when they pop up, gain AA, but that is not inherent to pop up. Yeah. Um, so in that case, what it would be used for would be for if you want to... Um, shoot something that your your and your skimmer would logically be higher than it currently is model wise it lets you it lets you count as being higher um the downside being of course other people can shoot you as well that's that's kind of what happens when you poke out a cover no matter what way you're doing it I think that covers all the skimmers. Yeah, they're relatively simple um, once you you know once you get it, like we once you right. Go. What what makes them seem complex is that with Craft World Eldar, you usually have skimmers crossed with tanks that can act a little bit like flyers, and with Dark Eldar, all your skimmers are open topped and they have some really unique. Um, war gear options that sometimes make them act less like skimmers yep. or walkers are another unit type which uh walkers do have a base most vehicles do not have a base walkers do also walkers move use moving the movement rules like infantry uh they do still have a facing which can influence where it can fire and it has armor values when you shoot with a walker you pivot the walker on the spot so that its guns are aimed at the target. So it effectively has um, a 360 degree uh, firing range with its, or, or you know, it can flip 360 to fire where it needs to. And doing that in the shooting phase does not count as moving for a walker. Uh, however, immobilized walkers 
ones that don't have a movement you know don't have a movement characteristic anymore maybe because an engine was destroyed can no longer do that they can no longer pivot when you shoot at walkers uh it's just like any other vehicle and whenever walkers walkers can assault so they can charge like infantry they can leave close combat without a penalty though like they're a vehicle and uh, models that hit a walker in close combat always hit the front facing unlike other vehicles unless it's been immobilized then they always hit the rear so facing does not matter the actual literal position of a model doesn't matter against a walker because a, a walker much like an infantry model is assumed since it's on a round base to be operating in a 360 thing kind of around it it can it can turn on the spot and it can hit a person to its left and then turn and hit somebody that's to his right and behind him you know but if it's immobilized that's no longer true and so now the infantry are always going to pick on the weak spots and hit the rear so in a lot of ways a walker that has a functioning engine essentially behaves a lot like a big old infantry model but with the durability of a vehicle that's me oversimplifying a little bit but i mean i'm not oversimplifying too terrible much here yeah i'd say it's a good it's a good summary Tanks have probably one of the biggest things that sets them apart is the ability to tank shock. So while you can't charge with tanks, they a, a tank that performs a tank shock first turns its vehicle on the spot and faces the direction it intends to move and declares how many inches it's going to move up to its maximum movement speed. This is done in the movement phase instead of declaring normal move. So you have to elect to tank shock. You move, when you do this, you move the tank straight forward until it comes into contact with an enemy unit or if it reaches the distance it declared that it was moving. No other changes in direction are allowed when you tank shock. <coughs> Excuse me. And you can't attempt to tank shock someone in close combat. If an enemy unit other than other than another vehicle is reached, that enemy unit has to take a morale test. And immediately resolve any effects on the moral on the behavior table if they if they fail, which could cause them to retreat back. Regardless of the results of the test, though, the tank keeps moving straight on, possibly tank shocking more enemy units until it reaches its final position. If it would hit impassable terrain or a board edge, it immediately stops an inch away. Uh, if someone from an enemy model in an enemy unit would end up underneath the vehicle when it reaches its final position. These models must be moved out of the way, the shortest distance leaving an inch between them and the vehicle. And if that can't be managed, the model's removed immediately as a casualty. If a model, if a unit's already suffering from a behavior token and uh, their tank shot, the unit immediately fails the morale check. And that means they'll immediately suffer 
another result on the behavior table. So you can kind of use tanks to corral people, force morale checks, and corral them away from, uh, well, potentially into their own demise. Uh, you can't flat out or, or advance, rather, on the turn that you tank shock. And if a, here's something neat you can do. So death or glory. If a unit has been attacked by tank shock and it passes its morale check, one of the models in the vehicle's pass can stand and attempt to destroy it rather than move out of the way, which is potentially a very suicidal thing to do. The model nominated for this heroic duty makes a single attack against the oncoming tank a single attack doesn't matter how many he has even if the weapon is like assault three or the model is normally allowed to move more than one attack in melee that's it but if the attack is uh, is resolved and if it hit the hit is against the vehicle's front facing obviously because it's moving at it you immediately apply the damage results and if it manages to destroy the vehicle, that stops the vehicles in its tracks and it may even blow up. But if the attack fails to be, to be destroyed, the tank just keeps going as normal. Except now this brave but foolish glory seeker is crushed and uh, removed regardless of how many HP it has as a ca uh, casualty. Uh, artillery units can attempt death or glory with a crewman and a gun. So you can attempt to point-blank fire an artillery gun. Assuming it can fire directly at a tank. But of course if it fails to destroy the tank, both the artillery model and the crewman model are removed as casualties. Now, tanks can attempt to ram other vehicles. And... When it does this, it's essentially a competition of the like the the strength of each vehicle. But you do get to add to the strength if the toughness of the impacted facing. So the one tank that's ramming is going to be using its front facing. Depending on where it strikes the other vehicle depends on what facing it uses. But if that facing value is 7 or greater, uh, it will increase the strength by 1 the, of, of the impact. If for every 3 inches that the tank moved before impacting the other vehicle, you get to increase its strength by 1. And then if the vehicle doing the ramming is a tank, because there are some instances where a non-tank can ram, you get to add plus one. Uh, and they're automatic hits. So they're automatic hits at the strength of the vehicle plus all these modifiers. So ramming into another vehicle can, can cause it to uh, take some damage. If, uh, if a vehicle has jank, like a skimmer, it can uh, take an agility and an initiative test, and if both are passed, it can hop out of the way and avoid being rammed. By the way, I don't know if we mentioned it, but uh, skimmers have jank, and whenever they move, jank gives them a much like the, much like uh, bikes are minus one to hit, ballistic skill wise. So neat little feature of 
the light lithe skimmers. Tanks can also be ridden on top of. Tank vehicles have a 10 transport capacity. This capacity represents a model's ability to sit on the hull of the tank. Uh, this is very dangerous, though. Models embark and disembark from a tank behave this way as though they were on an open-top vehicles, and they can only fire pistol weapons as they need at least one hand to hold on. Any shots directed at the vehicle still hit the vehicle, but have a 50-50 chance to also deal an automatic hit against a mounted up unit. So, it's a good way to not only have the tank be damaged, but to lose the guys on top. But sometimes if you need to get guys from point A to point B, the top of a tank suffices as a transport. Those are all the subtypes of vehicles. Um, is there anything you guys want to point out or recap on? Um, yeah, I think you did a fine job. You know, aside from the occasional coughs. <clears throat> well, it's that time of year. It is that time of year. Well, that ends this episode. And, so, well, you know what? I lied. <clears throat> because we're almost done with our overview of core rules. Basically, the only thing we haven't touched on are psychic powers. And psychic powers are a page and a half. So let's go ahead and touch on those. So that anyone watching, or rather listening, can have a nice, brief, bird's-eye view of all the rules. Simply put, psychic powers have four main components. A warp charge, a target selected, an effect, and a perils of the warp. So all powers are going to have a warp charge cost that are listed... And this represents the number of successes that you need to cast the psychic power successfully. It's going to often vary between the numbers 2 and 4. So when you cast a power, a psyker can roll d12 up to an amount equaling his warp value. So if your warp value is 3, you could roll 3d12. And if these d12 results in amount equal to or lower than the caster's psychic skill, remember that characteristic from way back, that is considered a success. So if you had a, if you had a psychic power that had a warp cost value of 2, and you had a personal warp value of 3, you could roll 3d12, and you'd want at least two of them to be equal or under your psychic skill. So if your psychic skill was 7, a 5, a 6 would be successes, an 8 would be a failure. After you elect to cast a power, you consult the power to discover who's a legal target. Sometimes the target will be like, oh, the nearest model, nearest unit. Sometimes it will say pick someone or pick a vehicle X inches away. Psychic powers are going to let you know who the legal target is. If you fail to get enough successes generated, the power uh, doesn't cast. The If you're successful, though, the power is cast, and you look at what uh, effects are applied to the target. These can range from anything to essentially being a gun that maybe has a weird element to it, like using leadership in place of strength or movement in place of AP. All of the all of the gun profiles, and there are air quotes around gun profiles, that result from shooting or from psychic powers often use characteristics in weird ways. Uh, or it could buff a unit. 
It could treat them as though they're in cover. It could nerf an enemy unit, slow them down, give them a low supply token. The sky is truly the limit for what the effects of a psychic power can do. But the point is, you either pass it or you fail it. Now, two little caveats there. One, you can Perils of the Warp. If at any point doubles are rolled when casting a psychic power, the caster must read and suffer the Perils of the Warp effect um, on the psychic power. This can also vary a lot. It often is some twisted, ironic version of the power itself. So, for example, there is a Raven Guard psychic power, which allows you to uh, take a unit and hide them in the shadows, and then they can be essentially removed from the board and reappear later somewhere else on the board, uh, kind of navigating through the shadows somehow in the Imperium. Well, if you perils and you're successful... The Psyker does it and forgets to bring the unit with him, and he gets lost in the shadows forever, effectively removing him from the game. It's not always that extreme, but a lot of Witchfire, a lot of those ranged attack ones I talked about, simply result in the Psyker being automatically hit by his own weapon. But they can kill you. Perilsing can kill you. So psychic powers are weird abilities with a twist. Also, units can deny psychic power. So any unit can attempt to deny psychic power if they're targeted by them. To do this, the unit rolls d12 equal to his warp value. <clears throat> and with the highest warp value in his unit, tries to get equal to or under his warp value. So yes, you're using warp value both as the number of die rolled and the target number whenever you're denying. However, you can only deny things if you're the target. The exception to that is if you're a psyker. If you are a psyker, you can attempt to deny something. You can attempt to deny a, a, an enemy power that is cast within 18 inches of you, and you, so you can use psykers to attempt to deny on behalf of other units, which uh, makes psykers more effective at denying, as they often have a higher warp value, making them more effective at it. But that's it. Psychic powers are simple. They have a warp charge value. You select a target. You cast it, you want to see if A, you're successful, or if you failed, or and then B, if you're successful or failed, did you roll doubles, which is a peril result. C, is the enemy target or a nearby psyker going to deny it? And then D, what weird ability is applied in the game? And that's it. That's psychic powers. So now, we can truly say we've covered all of the core rulebook. That is a huge overview it is not a replacement for reading the rules but it is a good either prep for reading them or refresher if you already have uh, i'm excited to for future episodes because we can be a bit more editorial and conversational we can explore strategies and tactics and a little bit less we can take the teacher hat off and be a little bit more exploratory with the game conversationally uh to that end i'm austin forrest i was joined today by lethan stewart and caleb baker and this has been i believe the fifth episode of the milk hammer podcast milk hammer of course is a fan edition of warmer 40,000. see you next time later mm -hmm.